0: Hey everyone. Welcome to the Nebraska and South Dakota Vision Source Podcast. I'm Chris Wolfe, and today we'll talk with Dr. Pete Kehoe, a past president of the American Optometric Association, private practice owner and vision source member. We discuss challenges and opportunities for our profession, strategies for being effective leaders in our practices and time management, among many other things. This discussion is broken down into two parts, and I really enjoyed our conversation, and I think you will as well. Be sure to subscribe and give us a five-star review. With that, please enjoy our conversation with Dr. Pete Kehoe. Well, so so in general, he kind of give me an overview of, of how you started, how you found optometry. I know you were, it was in your family, in your blood, but kind of what was your path to optometry and then uh, specifically back home and kind of give me an over, overview of how
1: that happened. Yeah, sure. My, uh, so my dad was an optician. Uh, He had worked for an ophthalmology group for years. Um, Ironically, he came to Galesburg, Illinois, to work in a practice and worked for a doctor named Harry Carlson, who sold the practice to Marshall Marvelli. And in 84, when I graduated from ICO, I actually bought Marvelli's practice. So it's kind of interesting that I ended up buying the practice that my dad came to town Hmm. for. Shortly after he left that optometric practice, he went to work for these ophthalmologists and about 1967, he'd gotten fed up with working for somebody else. and He wanted to open his own dispensary. So it was just a one-man shop and it was called Kehoe Optical. And I was, I guess in 67, I, by the time I turned nine, which would have been the next year, he was teaching me how to make glasses. So I kind of learned the optician trade, if you will, but I was always kind of the workaholic. So I was out mowing yards and stuff, but the reality was I wanted to be more than an optician. So I thought about other kinds of medical practice and decided optometry made the most sense, uh, went to Indiana University because actually uh, the guy, Marvelli, prior to me buying it, had a guy named Ray Applegate that was actually an associate with him. And Ray is this real nerdy dude in optometry, but he's one of these more brilliant guys. I think he's down at University of Houston now on faculty, but he'd been on faculty at IU, and so I ended up going to Indiana uh, for undergrad partially because I like basketball, and it was great. They just won the national championship when I got there in 77. <laughs> they won it in 76. But, um, you know, really thought I wanted to go to optometry school in Indiana. And it turns out, back in those days, you pretty much had to be an Indiana resident. So I ended up going to ICO in 80. Ironically, my dad actually passed away in October. My mom actually died the year I was a senior of high school. My dad died literally fall before I left for optometry school. So I ended up owning the Kehoe Optical practice while I was in school. Um, actually found wow. my, my optical manager, who still is now semi-retired, works for me. His name is Tom Jones. He actually ran the practice while I was in school for four years. And, uh, and then I came back, and the idea was what I want to do, and bought Marvelli's practice. And about a year later, we merged, bought a big strip plaza from the bank. It was back in those days of challenging high interest rates and everything. We bought yeah. a bought a building from the bank and merged the two into one location. So that's kind of how optometry came about. And interesting, you know, you think back of what you were doing back when I graduated in 84 in Illinois, we had just gotten the legal authority to dilate an eye. And uh, so my focus was always going to be more what I would call refractive or optometric care that we would know back in the day. And, uh, And then ironically, 10 years later, I was ledge chair and we passed therapeutics. And, uh, you know, now we have a huge more medical practice than we do an optical practice, really.
0: Has that been a a conscious evolution in your, or has that just been something that has, has been by necessity as your patients have aged and you've learned more, obviously, and you've put those tools to work, that it's just been a natural progression or was something you were focused on?
1: Well, what happened was, is that I came back to my hometown, which typically you can be successful, especially in a town of, at the time, it was about 38,000 people. And my name, you know, it was a name that people recognized. My dad had a reputation for fixing everybody's problems, And uh, so he was, you know, he was one of those really skilled opticians. And then, and Tom was really a good optician for the four years I was gone. So he really kind of kept that reputation. So going home was pretty easy. My intent was, to um, do a lot of vision therapy because I am one who has a bunch of ESO issues at NEAR, hated to read as a kid. My dad working for ophthalmology, their answer was, well, you just don't like to read. Um, Didn't really go to optometry. And first eye exam at ICO by a fourth year, he goes, you don't like to read, do you? And I was like, yeah, I hate it. This is why, he said. And so I was intending to have a very VT-oriented practice. And what happened was, everybody who knew my dad started coming to me and I immediately started diagnosing glaucoma and things like that and have to send them to ophthalmology. They would come back for their annual exams and say, I really don't know what's going on. So I would explain their disease and tell Mm. them what I thought they should do. And so consequently, literally almost the day that we got our therapeutics law passed and we could do it, we had this flood of patients that came in doing the medical side. So I've always been kind of technologically oriented, so that made it kind of fun and uh, so it kind of became a a niche if you will i mean I know when we when we first bought our i think it was our o c t if I remember right um, we did i looked at the database and you know we had seven hundred and fifty people that had a wow. home suspect so you knew you could that was that was a no brainer back in the day so yeah. you could very easily use statistics and just go back and look at your database and know hey this technology will pay for itself, but more importantly, it's going to provide great patient care.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, so you made a couple points there. I mean, first of all, how far is Galesburg, correct?
1: Yep. So we're about three plus hours away from Chicago. We're about three and a half to St. Louis. We we are right in the middle of Peoria, Illinois and Moline, Illinois. I like to say between Caterpillar and John Deere. Yep. Uh, my home airport is Peoria. It's 41 minutes from door to door. Um, so pretty much I can be anywhere in the world in two flights, which is kind of fun, but yeah, we're, you know, small town. Um, what happened was, is that it was always a manufacturing town and then in the eighties and ultimately, well, nineties really, but then in, in 2002, we lost most of our manufacturing. It really devastated the economy here and, the good news is medical optometry doesn't go away when there's, you know, mm-hmm. issues. So we've always had a very strong, you know, Medicare, based worked out really well.
0: Yeah. That's, that's excellent. And, and when you, um, you know, you made a comment at the very beginning about uh, you always um, you, you like to stay busy and, and that's the sense I get with you, Pete, that, that you always um, you must manage your time very efficiently. First of all, I guess, how do you stay so efficient and, and, um, and then secondly, how do you decide on what projects to start as a practice owner? And then when you want to take on other things and, uh, you know, do you have a process for that?
1: Um, you know, I used, my wife gets really frustrated when I say this, that I've been quite successful in spite of myself. Um, Part of it is, is that I think um, I've always decided to do things that were in the patient's best interest. You know, I, I think that's really the key to everything when it comes to practice, you know, growth and everything else is, you know, really look at how can I provide better patient care? And if I do that, then everything else will fall into place. And now I think it's become much more complicated because it's not just simple anymore. I mean, I intended to never be on a managed vision care plan in my career. And when the economy fell apart and my partner, Brian, had bought in, really didn't have a choice because the only people working in town were on either VSP or IMED. And so we, then we had to learn how to, how to do business, you know, and operate a business in the environment of managed vision care. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, my, my theory has always been, you know, something's thrown at you. You just figure out how to adapt, you know, adapt and pivot and move on and to me that's really the best way to describe it.
0: Do you think that, you know, that kind of brings up another point is that, you know, I always every time I've encountered you from, you know, on your time on the AOA board and and as president, you've always been positive about everything and I think there's there's a, an easy way to kind of uh come across that way that that when you're holding a position, everything can be very positive. But in the back end, sometimes as you get to know people, you get to see that it's, it's more challenging for them to stay positive. But I've never got the sense from you that that positivity is, is a farce. And, and I, I mean that in, in the, I mean, so my point in saying that is that sometimes when you think about like what is commonly available for us to digest as practitioners, specifically private practitioners, seems to be that it's very negative. There's a lot of doom and gloom. And I don't get that from you, uh, which, which is refreshing. So how, but I don't, I don't necessarily think that that, I think um, there are more of us that are like you where we're positive about a lot of things, but we get swamped out. You know, we get drowned out by, by, you know, the uh, the things that are kind of clickbait or the things that are negative that make it, um, you know, that are kind of salacious and then you get everybody that wants to jump on behind their computer and and type whatever they want to type. And then it's just this big, you know, snowball of negativity. So one, how do you stay out of that? And two, um, how, how can we as independent practitioners take that role of saying, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out what this obstacle is and figure out a way around it? Because by nature, sometimes we're not necessarily built that way and we're also not necessarily trained that way from a business standpoint.
1: Oh, boy. That's, that's a complicated conversation. Um, actually, I'll go back to something that I learned on the AOA board when we were going through the board certification days is is that he who hits send last wins the battle on the keyboards. (laughs) Um, So therefore I don't go on those. If it's a negative environment, I'm out. Um, I don't need to spend my time with negativity. I want to surround myself with positive people that are really coming up with answers. It kind of goes back to the way that you manage staff. And the way that you lead staff, you know, is, you know, don't bring me a problem without bringing me a solution. Don't just tell me the sky is falling. Tell me the sky is falling, but I figured out how how to stop it from causing harm to us. Okay, great. Give me, you have another solution? Let's try that. So to me, optometry and being an independent business owner gives us that opportunity. It's really the only way to practice optometry that we can pivot. We can make changes. And to me, that's why I'm so passionate about private practice, independently owned optometry, is because we get to pivot. You know, I, I kudos to the, all the guys that practice, all the ladies and guys that practice in different environments. But for me, to me, it's the best way to practice optometry because we get to pivot. That's our opportunity.
0: Yeah, and don't you... Don't you also think? You know, I, I was um, there was a, a big kind of commercial retailer here in in Nebraska that we got word in the paper. They're kind of a they're like a Walmart, but they're sort of regional. And
1: it um, once called Shopco.
0: Yeah, exactly. Same yeah, same one. So Shopco uh, sent around these, and and we've got these letters about store closings and kind of the the mo that I've seen is that they close their their uh, pharmacy, and then they you know a year later they wind up closing the entire store. And what's interesting is that. You know, like what you're saying is that you can't blame people who want to practice there, but they they really unfortunately aren't in control of their own destiny and I think that's the the beauty of private practice, like what you're saying, and having opportunities to partner with you know uh, vision source and then also our our partners within vision source because they've got a vested interest in our practice without without completely without controlling it, so you get to decide for your specific location all the things that are 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 uh, that you want to implement, that you know because you know those people best, and you can implement that on a local level. But you have all these tools, and so one of the things that I think is hard is that um, is there are so many tools. So when mm-hmm. you think about, um, because I, I think when I look at really successful practices in my area, they basically figured out ways to implement those tools, and it sort of seems like they're never sitting—they're never sitting back on their laurels. They're always kind of sitting, saying, "Okay, well." I've done this. We we've we've really got a great handle on this for the last six months. So now we've implemented that and it's a it's a it's a it's steamrolling. What's the next thing I can do? So Mm -hmm. how do you how do you do that? I mean I guess I guess that's the sense I get from you as well, Pete, is how do you how do you take that on in a maybe it's a do you think it's a mentality or do you think it's actually a process? Do you actually write these things down and, and make them as goals and set timelines? What do you what do you do to run that practice in that
2: way?
1: Well, personally, the, the good news is I have an amazing partner, uh, mm-hmm. Brian Patner. And so, Brian has, as I've kind of expanded my consulting and working more and more with Vision Source, you know, Brian's kind of managing the two practices that we run right now. But the reality is, is that I have always learned from each other. And to me, the power of Vision Source is our local member meetings and our local ability to, to think about things together collectively. Um, I've been a big fan of wisdom sharing groups or study groups and things like that. Because frankly, if all I do is I sit in the room and ask, which is better one or two, and then worse yet, I get on and read a bunch of negativity, then I'm not going to be very positive about the future. So for me, I'm always looking for other people to throw ideas out and go, Oh, that's actually a pretty good idea. We should talk about that. And then go back and talk to the partner talk to our staff and see how you know how does that play in and then we sit down and we kind of look at where do we want to be in a year in five years in 10 years you know i'm i'm going to turn 60 this year and i look at optometry and my passion is to make sure that it's good for the next 60 years um for everybody you know i want every od that graduates to have the opportunity to have the practice and the and the life of their dreams Um, and I think being independent, like part of vision source is the way to get there. But I think you have to really, you can't do everything. And I think that's one of the things that I think we can get in trouble with a lot of times it's paralysis by analysis. Mm. You know, we just think things and sometimes it's a whole lot better to just try it and fail fast and go, okay, let's try it again a little different way. A lot of people will try to get it absolutely perfect, you know. Dory Carlson and I, and I know you had Dory out there. Uh, Dory and I did the mastermind. We did some virtual masterminds with a bunch of folks in Vision Source,
2: mm-hmm. and we're going them
1: again. They're starting up, so if anybody wants to be part of it, you know, we basically take eight weeks and we go through John Maxwell's book, The Fifteen Laws of Fifteen invaluable laws of growth, and it's about personal growth. And basically, the thing that happens is a lot of people just go, "Well, I'm doing fine the way I am." But the reality is, if you're not growing, then you're yeah. actually going backwards. You know, And yep. a lot of people say, well, I grew 2% last year. That's really good. Well, did your costs go up 2%? They mm-hmm. probably went up more than that. So if you only went up 2% and your costs went up more than that, you're going backwards. So we have to always set our bar. Where do we want to get to? But it can't be about money. It's about how do we take care of our patients better. The money will always follow.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's important. And I, it's, it's, um, I, again, I, I think about this and from my perspective is I, I kind of have that same mentality. If you're not growing, you're shrinking. And, um, and then at some point you wonder, um, okay, well, when is it going to stop? And I guess as I, it, what's really important to me and, and valuable to me, and I think a lot of us younger practitioners is it's, I can be confident in the fact that, you you know, you guys like you have been doing this for what, 35 years, you're in the 35th year, is that right?
1: Right. Yeah.
0: And and you can probably look back and think of all that growth that's happened over 35 years. I can think back of my practice over the last I mean my 11th year now. What, you know, how how my practice has evolved, not just as a business, but how I've my practice of treating patients has evolved over that 10, you know, 10, 11 years and it's continuing to evolve. Um so I think uh I think that's really valuable. And I also think that, um, that it can be hard to set aside, uh, these kind of, you're you're talking about some meetings and, um, travel times. And, you know, we talked a little bit with Dory, you referenced Dory last week, but, um, we, we talked a little bit about her with her about how do you specifically set aside time to plan and, um, and then, um, so is there a process that you follow for that? Do you do it, you know, do you do it monthly, quarterly, yearly? What What do you think is the best for you?
1: Well, the way that we're set up right now is we do Tuesday meetings every mo every Tuesday morning, we do an hour meeting, but about mm-hmm. 30 minutes of it is team meetings. So it's our clinical team and our optical team. They're meeting by themselves. And then the three docs we're meeting. And then we get together and we do the great game of optometry. So then we go through numbers and things like that. But as a collective team, that's what we're doing. But Brian and I usually all sit down once or twice a year and really kind of look where we're going. You know, what's new out there. We are in the process of doing a big expansion going from about 5,500 feet to almost 11,000. So we've been, for the last two years, we've been talking a lot about that primarily. And it's just taking forever to get there. But we're excited about that. So that's kind of been our focus. We're also looking at buying another practice because we, we see where we are and where we want to go in the future. Even though I'm, you know, in the twilight of my career, I don't plan on going anywhere for at least 10 or 15 years, probably. Well, so, I mean, I think your doc retired from seeing patients at 85 years old. I probably won't go that far, but I love seeing patients a couple days a week right now. I'm sure it's going to be even less than that in the future, but I get to, optometry has afforded me a chance to do a lot of that by me being out on the road, doing different things. I get to bring back all kinds of ideas that Brian and I get to talk about. And Dr. Carter, we get to join in and really think about where do we want to take these practices, you know, in the future. Yeah. So to me, the one thing that I get really frustrated when docs say, I just don't have time to come to a local meeting or I don't oh, have time yeah. to do that. I got to see patients. And it's like, if you really look at your schedule, it, I mean, most practices are not a hundred percent filled and showing up so the reality is you can compress your schedule and take some time even if it's an hour a week that you set aside and you say i'm going to spend an hour a week and really think about you know what's going on in my practice if i'm that solo doc spend an hour sit down and do some brainstorming you know and then you know maybe take a day and just go somewhere and hide and if you've got a key team member or a partner, you you go somewhere else off site and you really think about where do we want to be in a year and in five years down the road? I mean, planning to me is really important, but if you don't take the time to do it, then don't be upset if you don't get where you thought you wanted to go.
0: Have you ever noticed um, when you, when you travel, like when, let me give you an example of myself. When I travel and I am, and I do a lot of, of traveling still, and it's mostly optometry related, but if I take, it's almost like if I take a three to five day trip, which is rare, super rare, where it's not on top optometry related, you know, if it's, if it's just a a vacation with my family or my wife and I can get away and, and do something like that, it's almost like day two or three hits. And then all of this inspiration kind of floods over me where I'm, where I just have all, all these ideas. And, um, and I think that I don't know, do you ever get that? Or, or does it happen right away for you? Or is there sort of a process for me? It's like, I, I sort of start to have this realization that every year or two is probably worthwhile for me to go in and, and sort of just let my mind relax and go. And then it gets me to this place where I, I get all this energy and excitement and then I can kind of focus it back. So as the end of my, my kind of travels are, are coming to an end, I can focus it back and kind of re-energize. Has that ever happened to you? Can you explain uh, that a little bit has, better?
1: Yeah, it has. Typically there's two things where that happens most is if I go skiing, which I don't get to go very often. Skiing is kind of cathartic to me because you, you know, you're focused when you're going down the mountain. But then when you're going up the chairlift, your brain can wander. And depending on whether you're sitting next to somebody you know or don't know, you're either talking or just kind of daydreaming. And the more I go up and down the mountain, it seems like I get that. And if I just need 30 minutes to go kind of calm my brain, typically what I'll do um, is go ride my Harley.
2: Hmm.
1: Go out on a little country road that's pretty safe and just go out and do that. And it just takes my mind away. And once you kind of let your mind wander a little bit, it's amazing how much stuff falls into it. So yeah, that's where the inspiration comes from. The other thing is I get a lot of inspiration. My wife, you know, Melissa, she was an amazing first lady for optometry, but she really understands optometry. So I can talk to her about things optometry and she gets it
2: mm-hmm. and
1: you now she can bounce off. Cause she was the one that was listening to everybody before I, they came to talk to me. And most of them thought she was an optometrist, which was even more fun. <laughs> um, Cause then I get to explain, no, she just plays one on, on Sundays, you know, but yeah, um, the reality is, is that I think we, we just need to take some time to really give ourselves planning time. The other thing is, is Chris, that I think is super important is a lot of people get very frustrated with what's going on. And mm-hmm. I, I'm one that also believes that, you know what, if it didn't kill you and you're still here, move on, take it as fuel to move forward. You know, look at what you've overcome, look at the things that you've achieved and look at how you survive some of those challenges and go, okay, I've got all this energy that I, to get me through what I just came through. Now I'm going to take that energy and really go forward in something bigger and better. And to me, I think that's really gigantic. Um, I can't stress that enough. I think a lot of people think of their past oftentimes as demons. And I, I look at it as fuel for the future, you know?
0: Can you think of like, um, so like maybe one time as your, during your AOA presidency that you felt like, um, or, or, you know, as a business owner, you know, a specific experience that you had that, that was like that, where you kind of pushed your way through um, and then you come out on the other side and, and it was tough for a bit, but then you, you gained a lot from it. Can you think of a specific situation and then what you gained from that situation?
1: I'll use the example of the managed vision care. Um, I, I speak of this when I lecture on doctor-driven dispensing. I kind of set the story up. Um, basically, what happened was is that, you know, we had no managed vision care. And Brian bought in the practice. A year later, it was about 8,000 jobs went away from our community.
0: Was this and, Sorry, Pete. Was this um, in the early 2000s? It, 2001,
1: 2002. Okay. Yep. yep.
0: Right after nine eleven.
1: Yep. Right after. Yeah. Right in that. Timeframe, uh, Maytag refrigerators left, Butler buildings left. I know they were out in Nebraska or in Omaha, I guess, or somewhere out that way, mm-hmm. Kansas, I guess. Um, but the reality is, is that you know we lost about eight thousand jobs, and we had to make this tough decision to join a vision, a vision plan. And so we did. And what we found was, of course, your your know, your revenue goes down, which means your profit plummets. So then it's like what all the consultants say is, you know, see more patients mm-hmm. put more butts in the seat. So we started doing that and we started getting complaints that we weren't delivering the care that we'd been delivering. Mm-hmm. before. And Brian and I literally sat down and reflected and went, holy crap, it's all about patient care. And if we take care of our patients, we'll be way better off. And we did. And we started focusing on listening to the needs of our patients and delivering the care that they really needed. And we got through it. And, you know, we today, I mean, you know, our concept is listen to the patients prescribe the things that are going to help improve their lives. And I'm one that, you know, optometry is really unique. Not only do we have to save sight and save lives, but we are one of the few professions that gets the chance to enhance Mm. things that people enjoy in their lives because almost everything people enjoy involves their vision. And if we prescribe the products and do the things that we need to do for them, holy smokes, man, it's a grand slam.
2: Yeah.
0: Don't you think that also, I mean, it, it adds, you know, in this, in this whole realm of, of telehealth and, you know, application-based prescribing devices, um, I still think if you're adding value, as you're talking about, from a doctor-directed disp- or a doctor-driven dispensing model, there's, there's so many intangibles that, that one of those other apps can't provide because it's not intended to provide that. It's intended to sell a product that is, is basically a generic product that, that we want somebody to find out that, uh, or we want somebody to think that their vision and what we can do to correct it is just a set of numbers. And if we can, even if we can come to that set of numbers with an app very quickly and very accurately, it still doesn't even come close to what we can do in the exam room through talking to the patients and figuring out what their lifestyles are and finding a solution that best fits their their model. So, so from a standpoint of job security, it would seem that that would be maybe not even just job security, but but from a standpoint of serving patients well and being a, a different model than what they can get at these some of some of these other outlets as technology advances is you know still how we how we. Um, serve our patients best which will help our practices
1: yeah it's let me share two things one it's about preserving our doctor patient relationship
2: Mm
1: -hmm. so I'm going to share two stories because one I think is really important a couple three years ago one of the founders of Warby Parker was on the stage in New York Hmm. um, at the global leadership summit and the interviewer asked him he said aren't you kind of Concerned or at least bothered by the fact that you're really disrupting this doctor-patient relationship, and he matter-of-factly looked at the guy and said, "Not at all. They had first chance."
2: Hmm.
1: What he meant was, is the docs had the first chance. The patient was in in our offices, and we had the first chance to meet all their needs, and we didn't do it. Yep. So they, he doesn't care. So that's the first one. So ah. the second part that I'll share is that I am very fortunate. I've been doing things with transitions for years. They've helped support me to go around to the schools and talk to the students about doctor-driven mm-hmm. dispensing. And I basically I open everything up by kind of going through all the technology that's out there trying to take away our patients, right? So it's the alternatives, it's it's the SightBox, it's the Warby Parkers, it's Zenny Optical, it's anything and everything that could possibly be out Mm -hmm. there. And then I asked the students the question, what's the one thing that all those things don't have that we do? And a kid from Nova, I'll give him credit. He said, they don't have any love. We got the Mm -hmm. chance to show our love. And I was like, you're Dr. Love, but that's true. We have that opportunity. So to me, that's hundred percent what you just said, you know, whatever we do to maintain our relationship with our patients, as long as we do that, then they're going to be much less likely to go try something. But if all we do is get in a hurry and listen to the consultants that say, see more patient, Mm -hmm. then why wouldn't they go try something else? Especially if somebody else had an okay experience.